Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One day, all of the facts in about 30 years' time will be published. When genocide has been carried out in this country almost with impunity, and when it is near to completion, people talk about intervention. You don't get freedom peacefully. Freedom is never uh, safeguarded peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of of a peaceful approach. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I am Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. It's only human to play games. Some might argue it's in the DNA. Games are part of how we learn and can be the best way to teach or solve a problem. But some games are more serious than others. A game recently played at a Washington think tank is about as serious as it gets. It looked like it it looked at what might happen if China attacked Taiwan. And the results weren't pretty for anyone. Joining us today to discuss What they found in playing the game is Mark Kansian. He is a retired Marine Corps colonel and a senior advisor for the Center for Strategic and International Studies International Security Program, which is a mouthful, but worth saying. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Can you explain what a war game like this actually is. I mean, I think people are familiar with the game Risk, maybe, you know, as a board game, but I'm assuming this is somewhat different. Uh, well, it, it is, but of course, it's the same theory. Uh, for this project, we developed a war game. This war game has an operational map for the Western Pacific, where we played air and naval units, and then it has a ground map for Taiwan, uh, where we played the ground units. There are 2,500 counters that include aircraft and ships and missiles uh, and ground forces. And we have a 70-page rule book to describe how uh, the game is played. Typically, we had uh, two sides with two or three players on each side. The players were mostly uh, former senior uh, government officials, retired military officers. Um, One side played China. The other side played the United States, Taiwan, and Japan. It was a free play game. That is, the two sides could adopt whatever strategies they wanted uh, in order to try to uh, triumph, uh, to win. Uh, and as a result, different teams adopted very uh, different strategies. What made this war game unusual were three things. 
One was that it is entirely unclassified. Uh, all of the information came from open sources. Uh, and as a result, we can talk about the assumptions uh, and the outcome without any restrictions. This is important because DOD has done a lot of classified war gaming, uh, but the details, of course, are not released and just little bits and pieces uh, leak out. The second thing is that we ran the, the war game 24 times. Uh, this allowed us to investigate a wide variety of scenarios and different strategies. Uh, there are many excellent war games and projects uh, in the unclassified world, but most of them only ran once or twice. Uh, we were able to uh, uh, run it 24 times, and as a result, had a much stronger analytical basis for the recommendations and insights. And finally, we did a lot of work on historical experience and weapons testing data so that we could develop uh, combat results uh, uh, and incorporate those into tables and computer programs so that it wasn't res uh, reliant on uh, personal judgment and that the adjudication of the first game was the same as the 24th game. Not to get too technical, but one thing I was wondering is what constitutes a turn? When you're talking about a regular, uh, you know, a game for civilians, you're talking about something where everybody acts at it one at a time, usually rather than simultaneously in a war, people are doing things simultaneously, right? Uh, they are. Uh, this game operates like games that many people have seen. Each turn was uh, three and a half days. So there were two turns for a week uh, and each side would move its uh, counters to make its um make its uh, moves, you know, they can make attacks, they can move uh, forces around. And then at the end of each turn, we, uh, our adjudicators would roll a die or run the computer programs to see uh, what happened. Can I back up and ask a, a, a more basic and fundamental question about this? And this is, I'm super fascinated by the subject in general. Uh, the idea that we use these games, uh, what are, what are essentially like advanced board games to simulate these kinds of conflicts. I, I'm very interested in the history of it. I've always kind of wanted to write something longer uh, about it, especially as it pertains to like the use of nuclear weapons. Um, on a very basic level, why do we do this? Uh, and what do you think we get out of it? Well, on the basic level, the reason we do it is to get insight into what might happen in a future conflict and to do it in an unclassified way so we can have a broad discussion about the assumptions uh, and the outcomes. And that's important because different people can make different assumptions. We lay all of our assumptions out there and we have different scenarios so that we adjust some assumptions uh, based on you know plausible alternatives. Just to give you a sense um, one of our assumptions is that the United States can use its bases in Japan, uh, but Japan would not enter the fight unless China attacked its territory. Now, as things come out in 19 of the 24 iterations, the Chinese did attack the Japanese and they, and they did come in. Uh, we had an excursion where Japan was entirely neutral. The United States could not use its uh, bases in Japan. Uh, that made it a very difficult fight. You note that there's some history here with uh, war games, and that's certainly true. Uh, the history of war games goes back, you know, decades, even uh, centuries. Uh, I think since the Second World War, you've seen it uh, um, maybe used uh, more extensively. Um, you know, the rise of uh, think tanks like RAND have, have uh, done a lot of war gaming, but even even before that, during the interwar period, the Naval War College 
did a lot of war gaming about a conflict in the Pacific. You know, they argue that that was helpful in thinking about what would be required in a Pacific war and therefore structuring U.S. forces and strategies for that war that finally uh, came in 1941. Uh, so there's a long history uh, here. Uh, and, uh, you know, because we are attempting to, you know, so, so see what the future might might bring so we can better prepare for it today. Before we talk about the results of this particular game, uh, and I'd like to keep the listeners in suspense, uh, no, but uh, how accurate have these games been in the past? Is this something that you really view as uh, could be predictive? Well, we're a little hesitant to, to say it's predictive. I mean, in part because for this particular game, we argue that an invasion of Taiwan is not the most likely course of action for China. They're more likely to use gray area or uh, blockade, but it is a plausible course of action. The Chinese, for example, have threatened Taiwan. They've said that all options are on the table uh, and it's the most dangerous. So that's why we looked at this particular course of action. Uh, so we're not trying to predict, but by, by having many different scenarios, we want to give uh, decision makers and the public at large a sense about the the choices that are out there, the decision space, uh, so we can better prepare today. It's not going to be as simple as this, but who won? Um, the, the short version is that the United States, Taiwan, and Japan were able to maintain an autonomous and democratic Taiwan, but that came at very high price. Uh, the coalition lost Dozens of ships, hundreds of aircraft, and thousands of personnel. The Taiwanese economy was wrecked. Um, the U.S. typically lost two aircraft carriers, for example. Uh, but also the Chinese suffered heavily. They lost hundreds of ships and hundreds of aircraft, with uh, and in many cases, uh, thousands of POWs uh, on Taiwan when their invasion collapsed. So there's some question about the, whether the Chinese Communist Party could maintain its its rule in China in the face of such a defeat. What we take away from that is that given the level of destruction, uh, we need to strengthen deterrence so we never fight that war. And if the war happens, we need uh, to be able to fight it uh, more efficiently and bring it to a conclusion more quickly. Was this 24 out of 24 times that you got this result or were there outliers? There was a spectrum of results uh, most of them were uh, Chinese defeats. Some of them were uh, stalemates or um, the Chinese maybe had the upper hand at the end. But it was about 24, 22 out of the 24 where the Chinese were, were either, either lost or were on uh, course to lose uh, with some pessimistic uh, outcomes or with some bad gameplay. Um, the, uh, uh, the Chinese could uh, conquer Taiwan. We did do one excursion where the United States did not intervene, where Taiwan was on its own, and the Chinese, not surprisingly, were able to conquer the island, although it did take two or three months. So, actually, that's an interesting scenario. Um, what is the quality of the Taiwanese forces as they were played? Well, that's a great question, because people debate that. Um, our base case assume that all forces had um, their face value. You know, that is, they could do what the nation said they could do. And we applied that to all four nations so that the Chinese 
could do what the Chinese say they could do, Taiwanese, et cetera. A um, lot of question on the Taiwanese, uh, whether their, particularly their ground forces are high quality. Uh, uh, right now, they, you know, the conscription is only for four months. Now they're lengthening that to one year. Um, but, you know, a lot of questions about really whether they were, uh, they would be very effective. So we ran a number of excursions where the Taiwanese forces were not as effective as, uh, you know, the Taiwanese advertised, uh, uh, but were less effective. We also ran some excursions where the Taiwanese decision making was slowed down because of either uh, special forces attacks or information operations or subversion or or something like that by the Chinese. Then I've got a similar question about Chinese forces. We've actually had a conversation or two on the show before about just how strong China has become. Um, one uh, a retired admiral we spoke with once uh, specifically said that it was unclear that the United States could defeat China within its own sphere anymore. Not that China could overwhelm the United States overall, but within its own sphere, it could defend its space. Um, what was your assumption usually about the Chinese forces, especially one aspect of this is they're largely unblooded. I'm going to use, it's a horrible phrase and I apologize for using it, but um, the United States has been fighting in one way or another for a long time and the Chinese really haven't. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the quality of the Chinese and uh, what you think about that? I don't think there's some, there's some people in India that may have, Literal the, sticks and stones in that, 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 that literal sticks and stones that that may argue with you, but I but fair, Jace. Well, you many commentators have noted that the Chinese have not had um, extensive military experience. The last war they fought was in 1979 against the Vietnamese, and they lost. Um, and of course, the last great power conflict was against us in the Korean War, and you know, arguably, they um, uh, didn't. You know, their their political objectives were. Uh, met, but at immense uh, military cost. Um, but they've built a very different military. Uh, they, uh, particularly over the last 20 years, expanded their um, naval forces and their air forces, uh, brought in uh, very advanced technology. So when you look at these um, systems, you know, they really are very high quality. A uh, lot of question, of course, about whether the Chinese have the software, you know, that is the training and doctrine to make all of this work together. Uh, as I noted, you know, we, uh, in the base case, assumed that they did. Uh, and of course, keep in mind that the um, the game is um, uh, played, you know, for uh, 2026. So that gives the Chinese, you know, what would now be another three plus years uh, to get ready and continue on the course that they've charted out. Uh, but we did have some op optimistic cases, that is optimistic cases for the United States, where the Chinese uh, software, their training, their doctrine was not uh, where they thought it was or where it was advertised to be. Uh, and that gave them much harder time uh, getting on the island. All right, Angry Planet listeners, want to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We are back on. Can you talk a little bit more about just what some of the major variables are in a game like this? It, it, it sounds so complex. I'm trying to imagine the board, and I think you actually have an image of it in the report. We, and do. we should talk about the report a little bit. Um, but yeah, what are how do you play an element like the CIA, for example? We focused on... operations in the Western Pacific. So if there were uh, activities that didn't bear directly on uh, what would happen in the Western Pacific, and particularly in the time scale that we're talking about, which is about one month, um, then we either abstracted it or ignored it. Uh, A lot of people, for example, raise questions about information operations. You know, could the Chinese uh, launch information operations against the United States, discourage the citizenry? And that's possible, but it's unlikely that you would have an operational effect uh, within uh, four weeks. Uh, In terms of intelligence, we um, did look at what's called ISR, uh, intelligence reconnaissance surveillance, very closely uh, and developed some rules, simplified, but some rules about basically who could see who when and therefore and who could target who when um uh you know to you know bring that element uh into the game you know we also brought in cyber and space those were both um a bit abstracted uh but we wanted to bring them in because of course they these domains get a lot of attention you know with cyber basically there were some cyber attacks that each side could implement uh and with space the same thing uh, you know, you could go after the other side's satellites. Now, in the event, no one ever did. Uh, I think both sides were so worried about what might happen uh, that they did not go after uh, the other side's satellites. Both sides did use cyber, uh, and and uh, uh, you know, and that had some effect. Now, but cyber is very hard to predict because you know, by its nature, no one says what the weapon is, so you can't be sure about you know what effects they might have. And we modeled what we uh, we modeled the game and the cyber effects on what we were seeing in Ukraine, so that, for example, the United States might be able to shut down a particular port uh, for a turn because of you know cyber attacks on its information systems. Uh, we did have imaginative uh, participants who came in and said, "All right, we're going to I'm going to use cyber to knock out all of the electricity on the east coast of China," um, and what we developed was a rule that said. We're only going to uh, implement capabilities that each side has demonstrated. So we said, all right, has the United States demonstrated the ability to knock out all the electricity on the east coast of China? No. Okay, then we're not going to allow that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same thing like with SOF. You know, we had some people who were very imaginative with SOF. Um, so we stuck with uh, demonstrated uh, capabilities. How many of these kinds of games have you participated in? Do you have any idea? Uh, you know, over the course of my career, I've participated in many of these. And of course, um, over time, you know, did a lot of board games. Um, the, my two collaborators, Eric Hagenbotham, 
did assessments of China when he was at Rand and did a lot of uh, wargaming there. Uh, and the third collaborator, who is my younger son, uh, runs war games at the Naval War College. He just got his PhD from uh, MIT, so he does this every day. Um, although the war games he does are uh, in a different part of the world, not on Taiwan. Are they fun? Say again? Are they fun? Are these games fun to play? You know, that's an interesting question because uh, on the one hand, the participants were extremely enthusiastic. Uh, so at some level, you'd say, yeah, it was fun because they uh, they found the games engaging, interesting, a lot of ideas during the hot wash at the end of the game. And I've received many, many emails from them saying about you know how uh, interesting this was and how they've used it in some of their own teaching and academic work. Uh, the reason I hesitate on fun is because both sides really, really wanted to win. Uh, so, you know, I mean, is it fun, you know, when you're in this struggle against this other team, you know, and, uh, you know, trying to see if you're going to win or not. Um, so I, I don't know if you call it fun, but, but the, I, uh, they, you're, they just find it engaging. The, so we've got video, the, the audience can't see you, but I, but you are smiling as you talk about it. Uh, it's, it, you look like you had fun when you were playing. <laughs> well, and for us, of course, you know, I mean, this was work. So, right. you know, I mean, I, I was trying to make sure that everything worked well, you know, that both sides, uh, understood the play of the game and that, you know, we got good data at, at the end. So I don't know if I was really having fun, <laughs> uh, but we, again, we were very satisfied with, uh, the outcomes and, and it was very interesting to see, you know, different approaches that different teams would, would make and, you know, the generalship did matter. How do you come up with the rules? I mean, you said it was more than 70 pages. How do you get people to agree? Who has to agree in order to play the game? Uh, well, the the rules were developed by the three of us, you know, the three principal investigators. And the um, the participants were not you know, given, uh, you know, choices in the, in the rules. Um, uh, at the end of the, each game, though, they... Uh, they were given the opportunity to talk about the rules and the game. And, and, you know, there are a couple of places where we either clarified the rules or made some adjustments uh, based on comments that we received. Uh, but the rules we developed based on uh, historical experience, looking at a lot of amphibious landings, for example, you know, the, um, to come up with uh, an algorithm for how Chinese would land troops, you know, how quickly they could land troops. Uh, we looked at D-Day uh, and the invasion of Okinawa in 1945. Uh, we looked at a lot of weapons test data to get a sense about, you know, would the missile hit the target? Uh, and, you know, if it hit the target, what, what would happen to the target? Uh, so we tried to you know, base this on uh, objective uh, data to the maximum extent we could uh, in every game. Uh, you know, some side would come up with something we had not anticipated. So, you know, we would have to make an, an adjudication, uh, but we tried to keep that to a minimum and, and really it was quite rare. Can we talk a little bit about Japan? Um, Cause we've talked about uh, the other two sides a little bit, uh, certainly more Japan has just, uh, or, it, or at least is in the process of agreeing to expand its military. And uh, what, kind of military were you counting on or from Japan in this kind of game? What, what do you feel we can expect? Well, we used the 
the the military that Japan had forecast for 2026, and the recent announcements are unlikely to make a big difference by then. I think you might see some differences, but of course, you know, it takes time to build forces, to build new uh, pieces of equipment. Um, from Japan, you know, we, uh, you know, uh, ascribed you know high quality to their equipment and to their uh, forces. Uh, so when they participated, they were an important uh, player. Uh, uh, as noted you know, on the assumptions, you know, sometimes they, they didn't participate, uh, but most of the time, you know, they were dragged into the war. And that's been a finding that has raised a, a lot of attention in Japan. I mean, this report was literally front page news all across Japan uh, because of our finding that regardless of what the Japanese wanted to do, they were probably going to be dragged into this war and they needed to think about how they were going to uh, react to that, how they were going to deal with that. That's really an amazing response to the report. I mean, French page news, how's it been received here in the United States? Well, it's, it's received tremendous attention really globally. I mean, it was front page news in Japan, also in Taiwan and uh, in uh, mainland China uh, here in the United States. Uh, We've uh, done a lot of uh, work with uh, journalists um, on Friday at, uh, after four days. The report had been downloaded 73,000 times and our short video explaining uh, the project had been watched over 100,000 times. And that was in the first four days. I'm not sure what we're up to now. Uh, so it's got tremendous attention because it, it fills a gap that is an unclassified objective um, uh, assessment of what a U.S.-China conflict over Taiwan might look like. And the public at large, as well as decision-making um, uh, groups, uh, have really wanted something that they could discuss uh, and debate. So we, we filled a void, and uh, as a result, you know, have, as I said, we received uh, tremendous attention. We're um, going up on Capitol Hill, talking to various members and staff. We're going into the Pentagon, actually, to talk to a number of very senior officials there. Um, you know, this is part of a process as we're explaining this to groups of people who have been interested. It's really, that is amazing, 73,000. Uh, I've done some work with the Atlantic Council in my past, uh, and I've worked at the, the World Bank. So I'm just saying, I, I you know, even with a successful launch, you're talking about in the low thousands. So this is actually very impressive. Yeah, we've been very pleased. And that was four days, you know, that last Friday. And, you know, I'm not sure what the count is up to now, but, um, you know, we, we continue to get a lot of uh, interest. So what's next? Well, next, what we'd like to do is uh, uh, some follow-on work uh, and particularly look at a couple of issues that we took off um, off the board uh, at the beginning, quite consciously, uh, one of them was is to look at blockade. Uh, most people, when they look at this problem, think that the Chinese would not launch a direct invasion, but would blockade the island and try to uh, bring it into submission. We'd like to do uh, uh, an assessment of that. Use this game, but to look at you know what a blockade would entail. How, you know how much um, uh, you know how many supplies you'd have to get into Taiwan. How you might might do that. Uh, we're also tr uh, trying to do a follow-on looking at nuclear operations. Again, many people have pointed out that you know, we have two nuclear powers who will be uh, fighting a war. Uh, you could have nuclear uh, nuclear play. Uh, so we're 
want to look at that, both the decision-making side and also if the nuclear weapons were used, how would that uh, affect uh, the course of the, the conflict? Um, and and then finally, we're you know talking to some of the uh, national groups, the Japanese, you know, maybe to look at their particular issues in a little more depth. So were nuclear weapons just kind of off the table in this simulation? They were. Uh, okay. And the reason is that once you bring in nuclear weapons, it's a whole different game. I mean, first, the dynamics of the of the fight are different. The decision-making is different. Uh, it's a totally legitimate thing to look at, uh, but it just went beyond, uh, you know, what the scope of this uh, project was. You think can quickly spiral out of control. Other countries might get involved that aren't necessarily part of the, the war game, right? Um, that makes they- sense. They would, they would. And, and, you know, what would be the dynamics of escalation? Um, I mean, a lot of great questions there. Uh, but again, that was beyond what we could look at in this, you know, 24 iterations of the game. <laughs> what was the most surprising thing that you took away from this? There were a couple of things that were surprising. Uh, one was that 90% of the coalition aircraft that were lost were destroyed on the ground by Chinese missiles. Uh, what that meant was that uh, we need to build hardened shelters and to disperse those uh, f- those forces so they are not quite as vulnerable. Uh, we knew that they were going to be vulnerable. We were surprised at just how vulnerable they were. Uh, another thing was the vulnerability of surface ships. I mentioned that the two aircraft carriers typically get sink- sunk at the beginning. Um, aircraft carriers can be very helpful and other uh, 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 circumstances, but here all the circum- all the surface vessels were uh, very vulnerable and really need- needed to get out of the way until the Chinese missile threat uh, declined. Um, another another thing, actually, an important uh, outcome was that the Ukraine strategy won't work. That is, with Ukraine. The United States has been sending weapons and munitions continuously from the beginning of the war. The Russians have tried to interdict that, but have not had any success. So we've been able to sustain Ukraine's resistance uh, through sending supplies. We will not be able to do that with Taiwan. Once the war begins, the uh, Chinese air and naval forces are so powerful that nothing can get onto the island. Uh, And that means couple of things. One is that the um, Taiwanese need to start the war with everything they need to fight. Uh, that puts a lot of emphasis on foreign military sales, making that work work more smoothly. Maybe you know putting some U.S. Um, munitions on the island. Um, there are a couple of ways you go, but but the Ukraine approach won't work. Uh, uh, several of our participants tried uh, that approach. You know, they tried to send in. Uh, convoys. Uh, they tried to fly in um, uh, munitions. Uh, they were always destroyed. Uh, the convoy was destroyed. All of the aircraft were destroyed. Uh, it just didn't work. It also means that you know, some of the, the plans that the Marine Corps and the Army have for sending forces forward with anti-ship uh, missiles and small groups uh, on the islands uh, are going to be very difficult to implement. First, uh, they have to be there before the war begins, and there are a lot of diplomatic problems with uh, with that. Once the war begins, they can't move forward just because of the uh, Chinese defenses. Uh, even if they get forward, resupplying them is almost impossible. Uh, so that you know the whole concept of you know, how we would use these new kinds of units really needs work. 
Last question for me, uh, unless Matthew has another, is how successful in the past, other games that you've played, how successful are they in terms of predicting real-world outcomes? You know, it's very difficult to answer that question because, fortunately, we haven't fought very many wars. Uh, for example, you know, there was a lot of war gaming about what might happen uh, in Europe if the um, Soviets uh, attacked. but uh, fortunately, that never happened, so we never had to find out, you know, what what the results would be. Now, the the Navy claims that the war games in the interwar period were very um, instructive about what might happen. Um, Nimitz is uh, you know, reported to have said that everything that happened during the war, except for the kamikazes, we had anticipated during these war games. I mean, I think that's a little uh, uh, extreme, but but you know, they they claim that it was uh, very helpful. So. Uh, we're hopeful that we can do that same sort of thing, you know, that is at least lay out what the issues are so we can better uh, prepare. Matthew? No, I think that covers it. Okay. Well, thank you let so me, much. Oh, let me no, add one please, more. Please, yeah, please. Let me please. Add, the report has a wide variety of insights and recommendations and people can go through. Uh, but one thing I want to wrap up with is the cultural issue. The cultural issue is that the United States is going to experience casualties on a scale it has not experienced since 1945. Uh, we're talking about two aircraft carriers being sunk, uh, potentially hundreds of aircraft. Uh, it's going to be particularly difficult for the Air Force and the Navy because they have operated in sanctuary for 70 years. Um, the uh, uh, you know, No Navy ships have been sunk at, at sea uh, and air bases have basically uh, been protected. Uh, that's no longer going to be true. The senior leadership of the services understands that, but but changing the culture, the culture of military services that are accustomed to operating out of sanctuary is going to take uh, quite a while. The example that we use to illustrate this point for people is follow-on uh, forces arriving at Kadena Air Force Base in, in Okinawa. Uh, they're going to land on a bumpy runway because it has been uh, hit so many times by Chinese missiles and then repaired. Uh, they're going to taxi past literally hundreds of wrecked aircraft that have been bulldozed to the side of the runway because they were, again, destroyed by Chinese missile attacks. Uh, they're going to move into a barracks that was vacated by the previous squadron because they were all killed uh, in the attacks. The base hospitals full of wounded, the uh, the sem the uh, uh, golf course is probably turned into a, a temporary cemetery, uh, and they're going to be told, uh, tomorrow you fly against uh, the Chinese over Taiwan. Uh, this is not an environment that uh, the U.S. forces have uh, operated in for a long time, and it's going to take some uh, it's going to take some cultural changes uh, to be ready for that. What are those cultural changes? How do you even prepare someone for that? Well, part of it is you change your training so that people understand that this is not a push button war. And, you know, the idea is out there, you know, the next war, it's all going to be ones and zeros and, you know, people going to push buttons and it's all going to be this antiseptic long range thing. No. <laughs> um, uh, again, for the air force, I um, make the point to, to young officers that, um, you know, these bases, Kadena, Anderson on Guam, they're going to be struck by missiles. Uh, and uh, you're going to have to lead people, uh, out and to clean up all of that debris and get the um, um, get the um, um, you're going to have to lead people out and uh, get the base operating again. 
that means leaving your bunker and saying, follow me. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that sort of cultural change, I think, has to start at basic training and then continue uh, all the way through. I realized I left out a very basic question. How long does it take for the war to from start to finish? I don't mean how long it took to play the game, but I mean, how long are you gaming for it to take? Um, game time runs three to four weeks. Uh, and that's important because uh, we get beyond the first couple of days when casualties are very high. And a lot of war games, uh, particularly classified, classified war games, we think, uh, focus on those first couple of days, which are very bad for you know the United States and the coalition, because typically the Chinese get the first shot. Um, as time goes on, of course, the United States is sending in reinforcements. Sometimes the Japanese now become uh, involved, and uh, the uh, uh, balance of power uh, shifts. You know, the Chinese are taking a lot of attrition, uh, because one thing I, I would note is just how difficult their task is. Uh, a lot of people point to the Chinese and say, hey, they got this huge military. Of course, they're going to win. Well, they got a huge military, but they got a really hard task because they have to cross water and then they have to land their troops on a foreign shore, which is hostile because they're shooting at you now. Uh, and then they have to sustain them, uh, even though the, the U.S. and Japan and Taiwan are shooting missiles at you all the time and sinking ships left and right. Um uh, plus, Taiwan itself is very easy to defend. You know, the center of the island is very mountainous. Uh, the coastal strips uh, have a lot of rivers and uh, cities. It's just very hard uh, island to uh, capture. I have one more, actually. Uh, still, I still think I'm still processing the the idea that there needs to be a cultural change in the U.S. military, and I think about. 18 year old kids coming in on a, a plane and seeing this wreckage and seeing the carnage and being told that they're going to defend. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to be fighting, you know, the Chinese in a, like an all out war. Do you, do you think that morale would be a problem? Do you think that we have done the American military has done a good enough job of explaining to its soldiers and airmen and sailors why this island needs to be defended. Yeah. On the question about explaining about the island, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, you know, I think there is a lot of support for uh, defending Taiwan and clearly a lot of um, concern about the Chinese as a military economic threat. I, I don't think that that would be a hard sell if if it came to a conflict, which of course we all want to avoid and uh, deter. You know, it's a tough uh, question about you know is the is the your rank and file in the military ready for this kind of conflict? Um, and you know, one of our findings is at one level, no, because you know we need to have a cultural change uh, um, because you know, the kind of war is very different from what we've done for the last literally a generation. Mm -hmm. But I have two, um, um, two aspects of, of sort of optimism here. I mean, one is that their grandfathers did this. Um, you know, they landed on Omaha beach, uh, um, Iwo Jima, you know, those kinds of really desperate struggles and were successful. And they came from very similar backgrounds. You know, that is, you know, a peacetime environment uh, and, you know, a lot of, Anti-war sentiment, a lot of you know, isolationism, uh, but they uh, rose to the challenge. Uh, 
And the other thing is, you know, I did two tours in Iraq, uh, in the Marines and, uh, uh the troops were magnificent. So I, you know, so with those two data points, you know, I think we can do it. Yeah. I mean, nobody ever really, it's an unanswerable question, right? Nobody's ever actually ready for this kind of thing. I they think. aren't. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's going to be a shock. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we say we need to prepare the troops for this because, you know, sure, you know, a month into it, six months into it, yeah, people will have the notion. But no, the first 24 hours, they have to be ready for it. That That's why I was asking about how long it would take to fight the war through, because it doesn't sound like you have a lot of time for culture changes or, you know, you're not going to bring up uh you know, they happen rapidly. Class. They happen rapidly in that kind of environment, though, mm. right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the culture does change rapidly, uh, but that's why we need to start now to be to be ready because the Chinese are going to be just as unready. Uh, you know, there's a uh, Lucius Grant has a great quotation in, in his memoirs. He talks about the really his first battle in the Civil War and and just how nervous he was. You know, ordering his troops forward uh, uh, against you know dug in enemy and when he got there he realized the enemy had had pulled away and he said you know it, I, I realized that they were just as nervous and just as scared as we were uh so you know it's not a question of you know being um um ready against some ideal standard we have to be better than the Ch- chinese uh, Mark Kansian, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, talking us through this. I think everybody should go to the CSIS.org uh, and uh, take a look at this report. It really is fascinating. Well, thanks again for having me on the show. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, please give us $9 a month on Substack. It helps us keep doing this thing, which is a labor of love. I'm going to try to turn it into something else in 2023. i got a good feeling. i got a good feeling. Uh, AngryPlanetPod.com or AngryPlanet.Substack.com. Uh, kick us that $9 a month. Like I said, it helps keep the show going get extra episodes of the show you get early access to the show and get a newsletter which i'm going to remain consistent on god damn it it's going to happen uh be positive response on the newsletter so far i'm enjoying writing it and keeping up with it uh it's a window into how my brain works and how i process all of this information about uh war and our, our bizarre century i hope you all enjoy it we'll be back Next week, with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet, please stay safe until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.